put on my radio uh, game show host voice. Yeah, exactly. Get ready for it. It's not the thing where we say, hey, I'm a new VP of sales. Here's my playbook, everybody. Now go sell like me because I don't think this will come as a surprise. I'm very different than most people. I have a very young and, and down-to-earth team who are uniquely intelligent across the board. And I come in here like the Kool-Aid man. Uh, and if they tried to get in on uh, get on a call acting like me, they're going to, number one, feel very silly and, and probably look very silly as well. Put on my radio uh, game show host voice. Yeah, exactly. Get ready for it. Um, all right, Kevin, I am so excited for you to be here and give us all of the spicy takes on everything go to market. But before we dive in, I'd love to hear who are you? I'm still trying to figure that out. But uh, for the purposes of this conversation, I am Kevin Young. I'm a very new VP of sales at a company called User Evidence. Uh, prior to User Evidence, I was at a, a demand gen company called Metadata, uh, preceded by a company that most of this audience is probably familiar with called G2. Uh, so G2 uh, kind of got me into this idea of customer proof points and, and the value that they bring in our current B2B sales world. Uh, and that really is what attracted me to user evidence, which we'll certainly talk about at some point today. That's awesome. Thank you, Kevin. Um, what I loved about our conversation before this podcast was your take on playbooks. So this is a podcast where we talk a lot about go-to-market strategy and playbooks and best practices. Um, and one of the first things you said to me was like, I'm really anti the playbook. And I was like, all right, say, say more. And so I want to hear your perspective on what is the anti-playbook playbook from your experiences leading sales at high growth startups. Yeah, it's almost an oxymoron, right? Like the anti-playbook playbook. But uh, I've seen people's eyes go wide and, and start to panic when I tell them how I don't really run a playbook. Uh, and of course, what I don't mean is that there's no process or structure to what we're doing. But the reality is, over the last 10 years, and, and certainly even more so over the last two, the buying cycle has changed significantly from the time when we, whoever in SaaS decided that we're going to do this thing where we have one call that's just discovery and we're going to hide pricing until we can show them the value. And then we're going to run them through a full demo of everything we do, even if they're only interested in two of them. Uh, and by the way, we're going to bring in some sales trainers like a Sandler or a challenger to teach a team of individuals how to all sound like the same person. Uh, it turns out that actually doesn't work anymore, uh, which is why I think what we're seeing is a lot of resistance to adhering to such a strict sales process because it's implied with the name. It is a sales process, it's not a buying process. Uh, and so when I say anti-playbook playbook, what I really mean by that is we have to help our sellers in particular, which is important to me as a VP of sales, uh, figure out how to be almost more like buying consultants, which I will never allow them to call themselves because that's just more nonsense sales speak, like account executive. Uh, but what we need to do is understand the strengths and the weaknesses of each individual seller, maximize those traits and those characteristics and those skills to help them understand how to best service the customers along their buying journey. So this is a, a little bit of a long windy answer to the idea of playbooks of rolling out a medic or a, uh, a Sandler uh, across an entire team of individual sellers is, is no longer uh, the best way to do things. And I would argue it's actually counterproductive. Wow. 
this is, I think you're going to have a lot of people disagreeing with you on that, which I, which I love. I'm, I'm used to it. Trust me. Um, I'd be curious. So, all right, you, I like the perspective of, you know, buyer consultants, we're helping them on their journey. I like the perspective that there's just like, you can't have a copy and paste playbook for everyone. Like there's some companies where you should run discovery before uh, showing pricing and proving value. And then there's other companies where it's like, why do that? We're more of a transactional sell. Um, how do you know, like, is there ever a time to run a playbook or is it just, you know, just figure it out as you go and make up something different each time you're at a different type of company with a different type of product? Well, you're a CEO, Alexa. So I, uh, I know that you would never believe that you should just wing it along the way and, and hope that it scales because it doesn't. And again, like we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, the idea of an anti-playbook playbook in itself is inherently a playbook. Now, I think the important things to note are, uh, if you think back to like high school chemistry class, uh, which I did not do well, in, uh, there's always in every experiment a control and a variable, right? And previously, the, the control was the rigid three-call sales process with a, uh, you know, setting timelines and sales engineer demos and things like that. And uh, my... Uh, what I'm implying essentially is that the control in our variable has changed. The control is no longer the sales process. Uh, so the control now must be things like understanding where we win and lose mm -hmm. and evolving that information over time and applying that as we go to the trainings, to the teachings, to the process that we're running, uh, as well as to the data. Understanding why we're winning and losing should be tied back to some sort of data points to allow us to figure out where to apply pressure, where to maybe refocus our attention. And those are the things that we can then scale up. It's not the thing where we uh, where we say, hey, I'm a new VP of sales. Here's my playbook, everybody. Now go sell like me, because I don't think this will come as a surprise. I'm very different than most people. Uh, you know, I have a very young and, and down-to-earth team who are uniquely intelligent across the board. And I come in here like the Kool-Aid man. Uh, and if they tried to get in on uh, get on a call, acting like me, they're going to, number one, feel very silly and, and probably look very silly as well. So just to reiterate, the the issue or the point I'm making is not that we should have no process, it's that the process has changed and the control in our experiment, which is what sales processes are, uh, that part has changed as well. So I know I was giving you a bunch of crap before, but I very much agree with your perspective. I think that when you just launch and say, you know, you bring a sales leader from one place to the other, and they're going to bring their playbook with them, especially early stage, it doesn't work. It's, we need to go back to first principles, like how, how do buyers want to buy? And therefore, how do I align the sale sellers to that journey? Um, and so again, you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't scream that on, you know, top of a, a rooftop, but you know, I agree with you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, you don't want to be on record saying that you agree with Kevin Young. But uh, <laughs> look, and if I may, I don't want to, to plug user evidence too much, but this is a really perfect uh, reason as to why I am here with user evidence. So uh, what I found at my time at G2 is that, and, and no disrespect to the, the Gartners and the Forces of the world, we are not only clients of theirs, but uh, partners as well, and, I, and we have been for a long time, but uh, they are now very much correctly focused on the enterprise, right? The uh, the hardcore analyst reports and the long form content and things like that. Well, how does that help your company? 
yeah. a company that focuses around PLG uh, businesses and whatnot. Uh, so what attracted me to user evidence is sort of this combination of two things that I'm very passion- passionate about. We sell software. Let's you know, let's be reasonable about our passions. But um, user evidence is a, a customer voice platform, right? We automate social proof for you, generating verified proof points like case studies and testimonials and uh, quantifiable metrics without requiring any manual work. So we're, we're touching both the sales and the marketing side. Uh, and so for me, when you say the buying cycle has changed, that's exactly why this type of thing excites me. It's because right now we are not closing deals ourselves as sellers. We need to equip our buyers to close these deals for us. And that's the kind of stuff that user evidence helps do. Always be selling. Am I right, Kevin? You, you, you have to get I, a I must- I'm a real sicko, Alexa. That's it. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to, you don't want to make a career of this. I'm aging rapidly. One more, one more question on this topic. I know you, I know you talked about this a little, but I want to push it on a little, a little more. Uh, something you said to me, quote unquote, is modern selling is atrocious. Can you tell me more about what you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's going to require longer than a 15 minute podcast, but the things that immediately come to mind are the things that you as a CEO are probably inundated with on a daily basis. Uh, the amount of emails that I see where the start of every paragraph is I, or the amount of following up and circling back and checking in, because candidly, the reason you're doing that is because you didn't run a tight process in the first place. And so there was no understanding of how things would progress along the way. We have sales managers uh, who are still running teams by Salesforce dashboard. We have uh, CFOs and CROs who are still running uh, budgets and things like that by Excel spreadsheet and uh, you know making decisions around layoffs, which is an incredibly serious and, and uh, important topic. And they're doing it by color-coded Excel spreadsheets. Um, this, this applies across the board, not just to sales, but I think sales in sales, it manifests the most because we're the most visible. And so when, when things are not great from the top and when you're not being led by people who are forward-thinking people, uh, of course, it's going to filter through to the, the rank and file. And that's what we're seeing with sellers. There's a lot of people who are pitching their product because their product's great. There's so many great, great products out there that oftentimes when you see them, you're like, yeah, this is awesome. But people don't buy awesome. People buy solutions to whatever problems they're having, and even more so now today. I I definitely agree with that. And um, as we also think through our own outbound and outreach, it's something that's top of mind for us um, of how do we always lead with value? How do we make sure that we're finding pain? How do we make sure that uh, we are tailoring exactly what we know their pain to be with the message that we can deliver to solve that pain? So I, I really sure. appreciate that perspective. Um, changing gears a little, you have a very successful career as being an early seller at an early stage company, which I think is one of the hardest jobs. And I think, uh, not, not right for a lot of people, but you've, uh, I don't know what it says about you, but you've not just done it once, but you've done it. It sounds like three times. (laughs) Um, so tell us a little bit about what is the anti-playbook playbook for being an early sales hire at an early stage org? And then how do you go from being that early stage seller to now leading an entire sales org? Well, it didn't happen uh, overnight, that's for sure. And, and in large part, because when you're, in, when you're a seller, especially when you're, you know, I, I tell people that I really think I, be, I went from becoming a salesman to a sales professional uh, during my time at Salesforce, when I finally had some actual training and some actual understanding of how the things that we do impact people's businesses uh, and not just slinging software. Uh, 
So I think when you're a seller and you're early in your career, number one, you're very, very self and money motivated, which you should be to get into sales. If you're not at least largely money motivated, sales is way too stressful of a job. Uh, So how this pertains to being an early hire is that when you're an early hire, you're selling and you're selling and selling, selling, selling. Sometimes uh, at the expense of other things like building processes and whatnot. Um, and that's because at early stage companies, it requires the experience. It requires the, the getting into the field and seeing exactly where our strengths are, where our weaknesses are. Because if we hire before we figure all of these things out, like product market fit, we're setting not only ourselves, but our new hires up for failure. Uh, so step one for me is to figure out, get a lay of the land. What is the current state of the union? Where are the things that we are weak? Where are the things that we are strong? How can we maximize the strengths uh, and start to diminish some of the weaknesses? From there, it's about finding who will be the right fit for this company at this time. And it's a very different thing than your third sales hire versus your 13th or your 30th. Yeah. So along the way, you're all you're doing is you're fact-finding. Fact-finding with people, fact-finding with the market, fact-finding with your product. And then with that data, you're making decisions to start to scale the company. Uh, and I don't know if you're asking from a personal standpoint, how do you go from being a, a sales hire to a, a sales leader? Number one, you need the desire. Uh, and, and when I talk about modern sales being atrocious, uh, part of that is the fact that who is often the first sales manager at a startup? Did, do you have a hypothesis on this? Or, or do you have... I mean, it's the CEO to start out with, leading out usually. Oh, good. Let me rephrase. Uh, <laughs> let me rephrase. Who usually becomes the uh, the first sales manager after you start scaling the sales team? It's probably someone who's been there before as an AE. And you, you yeah, need... the top the top AE is generally yeah. who gets promoted to the sales manager. Uh, we can redo that if you'd like. Uh, the, I, love uh, you know, I like that. You know, what I like, Kevin, is you're turning it back on me. You're making sure I'm on my game. So... Keep this going. More so, I, I wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, I wasn't putting my foot in my mouth here, but uh, never stopped. Before, <laughs> we love so it. We love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, more often than not, in my experience, uh, you know, talking with other companies, I'm not going to sit here and talk about my advising, uh, but more often than not at young startups, the, the first sales leader is generally just the first or second salesperson and whoever did perform the best. Yep. Well, what if they're not the right person for that? Uh, and, and similarly, the way that I found my success into sales leadership was not because I was uh, placed into the role. It's because I, I went and found a role that I thought I would be good at, which was creating uh, an SMB segment at G2 that didn't exist. I figured who, who needs this publicity and exposure more than young startups who can't necessarily afford to pay $50,000 to Gartner to be put on the magic quadrant. Uh, I think that's probably a little low uh, compared to what it is nowadays. But uh, so for me, it, it really took uh finding the thing that I knew I could do, or at least believed I could do and, and presenting a business plan to support it and getting the blessing for that. Without that, I wouldn't be where I am now. And so it required luck, frankly, and some, some uh, generosity from my leadership uh, yeah. to allow me to ex- explore this. Uh, but then the most important thing for me, and it didn't happen immediately, is maturity, right? When you're a seller, you are, you are almost entirely self-motivated in terms of your job. When you become a sales leader, that must change. It must. And this is tying back to our initial conversation around the anti-playbook playbook thing. That is why it is so much more important to coach to the individual instead of coaching to the Kevin Young school of sales, which may not be applicable to anybody else but me. 
That's awesome. I, I really appreciate that. It was very tactical and real examples. And uh, it is a com- I, I, even outside of sales, it is a common theme of, you know, you take your top performer and you turn them into a manager. But just because you're really good at the IC work does not mean that you'll be a great manager. And, and same vice versa. There are some amazing sales leaders that aren't great at being an individual contributor. So I think it's sure. a really good point to call that out and just kind of acknowledge that there's different roles for everyone. Um, last question, Kevin, what, what should I have asked you that I didn't? Anything else top of mind? I think for me, Alexa, I'm very, and I'd like to ask you when, uh, when I see your content on LinkedIn and we've joked about this before, I often find people almost like yelling at you about like why you don't have a PLG motion, despite being a company that services PLG customers. Uh, and so I'd like to, to ask you because I've never been on the PLG side. Why do you think people are so resistant to this idea of what you're doing? And by the way, I know because I've followed you for a long time, I, uh, I know that you'd love to, to get to a point where you do offer, have a PLG offering. But what do you think it is that makes people so frustrated about that? Yeah, I mean, all press is good press. Am I right, Kevin? <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, people are frustrated, but I don't care if they're frustrated by us not being PLG because they're still buying our platform. And so to me, what we set out to do is how do we align to what our buyers want, exactly what you said. And what is the product they want? Um, How do they want to be delivered the product? How do they want to get value? And for us, we started with mid-market customers. So customers with thousands of employees. Um, And because we we touch the data warehouse, we touch the CRM, we touch all of this sensitive data, no one was going to self-serve onto our product. There will become a world where we serve SMBs and we serve the long tail of smaller businesses. And that is when the buyers will want to buy through a PLG motion. And that's when we will build for PLG. But as a two and a half year startup or two and a half years old, you know, we have to place bets and we have to stay focused. And our bet right now is in the mid-market and we are selling how those mid-market customers want to buy. So it's, you know... I think there is a lot of hate no matter what you do on LinkedIn, but at the same time, like sure is. for for us, it's like we placed this bet and our competitors who bet on SMB self-serve died. And so it's kind of like, I don't care what people say. I want to build a great business. Did that answer your question? <laughs> it certainly does. Yeah. Uh, and, and I didn't ask this intentionally to set this up, but I think what you just described is a great way to bring our conversation today full circle, which is that you just you tried to figure out how the buyers want to buy and what product they want from you, and you acted accordingly. And I think if we do that with sellers, we're going to realize that our conversations become far more human and, and far less salesy. Uh, and that's the way business is getting done now. Uh, people, they, the old expression is people buy from people they like, and that's partially true. But also, I would say it's more likely people buy from people they trust. And right now, People don't trust sellers, and rightfully so. Uh, yeah. There are, you know, there's far too many examples of sellers overpromising, underdelivering, and it's it's often their fault, but it's often uh, more often their leadership's fault. And I think the same can be said for a startup. Uh, you're getting all sorts of advice from every single person around you, whether they have any, uh, you know, any experience in the industry or any credibility whatsoever. Some of them certainly do. Maybe they're on your board. Uh, it doesn't always mean it's right. And so yep. I think if we stick to our principles and our core values uh, and we and we do so uh, continuously and authentically, things will shake out the way they shake out. And that doesn't always mean you win, but it does always mean that, that at the end of the day, you'll be able to, to sleep easy. 
Yeah. And something we talk about is um, in this new world of product-led sales, there is a spectrum of how you sell. And for us, we've never been the company that's like aggressively trying to like wine and dine people and just sell them on this like vision. What we're, we're really selling leading with value. Like if you look at our kind of how we are, how I operate on LinkedIn and Twitter and with our 3000 person community, it's all, how do we deliver content? How do we deliver insights that are valuable and then lead with that? And I remember on one of the comments where I was probably getting like, you know, beat up by all the reasons we're not PLG. I remember one of our customers, Ben Lamson, who's now at uh paper card <clears throat> by digital ocean. He said for not being a PLG company, the buying process was as PLG as possible because it never felt like they were being aggressively sold to. We were just helping them along. What a compliment. Yeah. So that's an incredible compliment. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you, Ben. But um, we, yeah. So for us, it, it is, and it does come back to what we talked about in the beginning, just thinking with first principles, like you don't need to copy and paste anyone's playbook. You don't need to go to market the same way anyone else does. You need to think first principles about your customers, your business, your goals and, and build from there. Um, and if people don't believe that themselves, Alexa, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. Oh, I, I, I think it's that. important that they realize this is not you and I just spewing our feelings about this stuff. There's all sorts of data, more data than you could possibly imagine around the fact that a buyer is now 50% or more of the way through a buying cycle before they ever engage with you in the first place. Yeah. So this idea of creating a sales process that our starting point is very likely their halfway point is counterproductive. It's counterintuitive. And it's our job as sellers. It's our job as leaders to build a product, build a company, build a buying experience that meets them where they are instead of where we want them to be. Yep. I love it. And with that, I want to say thank you so much, Kevin. This was fantastic. Uh, you didn't let me down with all the the hot takes. Um, and I will take the anti-playbook playbook with me for for as we continue to iterate on our anti-playbook playbook at Pogus. So thank you so much for your time. Feel free to turn off the comment section on, uh, on this post when you put it on LinkedIn. I'm sure people will be crying there uh, in droves, but I invite it. Uh, thank you, Alexa. This is great. I appreciate you having me. And uh, I'm a fan of your company and your work. So looking forward to seeing your continued success. Yeah. Thank you so much.